0: Um. Uh, sorry, second service. <laughs> uh. Wow. Um. I I was having a conversation with somebody. I apologize. Um. Oh yeah, Mark chapter sixteen. A little awkward. <laughs> um, y'all doing okay today? Amen. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Good. All right. Good. Good. Um. Can I tell you what? Let's pray. How's that? Is that good? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today, and Lord, we just thank you for your your presence in this place, Um, and Lord, we just pray that you would move in this time of worship, uh, and that you would move as we worship through, uh, worship in song and worship in the Word now. God, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts, Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would move us from where we are to where we need to be. Uh, Lord, sanctify us, grow us in christ's name we pray amen and amen um, <laughs> I would like to say that was the first that 's the first time that 's ever happened, but some of y'all are thinking like I, I know how last minute Alan is. I was just waiting on the Sunday that that would happen, so sorry about that um Man, we are, I, I'm so excited uh, to, to finish this series uh, with you this week. We're in the middle of our uh, circle series uh, talking about the relationships that we have, the com- level, layers of community that we have as individuals. Uh, right, that God has called us to be a part of. And so we're going to finish today. This is the fourth part of, of this series, um, but we're going to look at this diagram, right? So we've got that we've been tracing the last few weeks. We've got ourselves there at the bottom. There we are, right? Uh, we need to be right growing we need to be disciples followers of Christ but in doing that God has called us to make a difference in different layers of community the most immediate difference that we are called to make in in discipleship is in our families and so the innermost circle that God has called us to as believers is our families we talked about that in the first week what it looks like to Disciple our families to go home with intentionality rather than our families getting our default uh, guard, our our guard being down and getting our just blah, end of the day self going intentionally home to our family to disciple them. Then we extend from that to talk about the circle of our friends, right? That God has called us not just to acquaintances. Remember, we talked about I, I, I don't meet a stranger. Like I have a lot of friends, um, but these are people that are in the inner circle of your life, people that speak into your life. And what we said about those is they need to be believers. If the closest friends that you have are not believers then it is very, very difficult at times when you go for counsel and things like that and times that are difficult, if they're not pointing you to Jesus, man, you can sabotage your sanctification and your growth as a believer if you're not minding that. And so not that we shouldn't be friends with the world, we'll talk about that today, right? But but if, if this inner circle better be believers that are encouraging you and pushing you toward Jesus, the other thing I would say is, are you that friend? Are you in those inner circles in people's lives that are pushing people? When they come to you, they come to you because they know that their negative worldly emotions will be vindicated and they'll feel better about themselves or they'll be pointed to Jesus, right? Are we those kind of people? Then the next, there's a fly on the screen. Uh, Uh, Then the next circle is the church, right? These are not mutually exclusive. I hope that your family, uh, part of your family is your friends. That fly is right in the center of that circle. Uh, So I hope that your friends are in your family. I hope that some of your friends are in this church. Right? But the intentional community of believers that God has placed you in to grow and to thrive, to be held accountable and to be pushed toward Jesus. The church, the activity and the vision of the church, right? It should revolve around evangelism and discipleship. And so, what we've done is we've wanted to give you handlebars in all those areas. For the family, we're doing these Advent devotionals. By the way, if you don't have yours, you'll hear they're available. Um, They will be. They're not now because they've just been sold out. We've sold out of them, but we will get them to you before December 1st. So if you want to go and got $15 or cash or check, give that to Next Steps, and we will get you a book before December the 1st. But to have these Advent devotionals to go through from December 1st to the 25th, just as a way to point your family toward Christ during this christmas season we 've given you some handlebars there uh, for the for your friends, right the handlebar. Of community is the church. We hope that you would find meaningful relationships with people in the church. That you would look within there to find meaningful connection in the church. Right? We have home groups. We have mission. Uh, we have uh, ministry teams. We have all these different things that God has placed in our life. Men's and women's group to push us through this process of sanctification. But all of these circles are what God uses in our lives to ultimately bring us to the final circle that we're going to talk about today. It's the circle of the world, right? There's a reason why when you were saved, you weren't immediately plucked out of existence. There's a reason that If if the point of your life was to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, then the most reasonable place for you to end your existence was once you made the decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the point, right? No, we're still in this world. And so what is it that God has for us as we use all the circles in our life and we leverage those things for eternal life? purposes. Just like we have different families, we have different friend groups, we have different churches that we attend. Every believer's interaction with the world is unique and different. When you go to your workplace, you are interacting with people that I may never have the opportunity to influence. If you're counting on the pastor to be the influencer of the community of the world, then I'm never going, that, those people will never hear the gospel because you're waiting on the pastor or a staff person or a, a home group leader in, or, to do those things. But God has called each and every one of us who have received the gospel to bring the gospel in the world in the levels in which we interact with it. This is my calling, and this is your calling. Um, I, I think I've said this before, but it meant a whole lot to me. It is not my calling. It is not my calling as pastor to reach this community for Jesus. That's not my job as pastor. My job as pastor is to train and equip the church for the work of reaching this community with the gospel. It's my job as a believer, just like you, to reach this community. It's who I am in Christ, not who I am positionally in this church that has called me to, be a, to, to reach this community. Uh, we are level in that. God has given all of us equal mission in that, right? And so how are we engaging? We follow the example of Christ as we look at his engagement with the world. Right, We said, well, you can have the wrong friends, but you better have the wrong friends for the right reasons. Do you have those friends in your life because you like what they give you in this world? Or do you have these friends so that you can engage them with the gospel and reach them for the glory of God? If you're not engaging with the world for the right reasons then you're going to be influenced by the world. Then you're going to be in the world and of the world, right? And so what did we say in, our, in, in the second week? We said, if you, you can have the wrong friends for the right reasons. But if you're going to have the wrong friends for the right reasons, you better have saved friends that are closer. That's what we see in Jesus, the nucleus of the disciples. Jesus would go and he would spend time in the world engaging with the wrong types of people, but he was always doing it to reach them. He was always doing it to share with them, not to partake with them in their sin. As we engage in the world, we follow. We follow Christ. And the first thing that we follow is Christ's command. So Mark chapter 16, Christ clearly gives us the command to follow. It says in verse 14, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, the eleven being the the apostles. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Three different reports had come to them that Jesus was alive. Jesus was no longer dead. He was alive from Mary, from the ladies that came to the tomb, and from the two men that walked from Emmaus, and maybe even more had told them, hey, Jesus is risen. And they didn't believe him. So Jesus first dealt with their unbelief. Why did he deal with the unbelief? Because if they didn't have faith, they were not going to succeed at the next chapter that God was calling them to. If they didn't have faith, it was going to require incredible faith to do what Jesus was about to call them and command them to do. So he deals with their unbelief. And then in verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. What we see here is Mark is summarizing the great commission. He's summarizing what Jesus said. Well, hang on now. Jesus, you said that he went into the upper room. He, or he went into this room, and he appeared to the disciples, and he's telling them now, the Great Commission, what's going on here? Well, Mark is doing something that he's famous for. Mark, there are some people that can say a lot with a little, all right? I admire those people. I am the opposite of that. I usually say a little, and I use a lot of words to accomplish whatever I'm saying, right? Right? There are people that can say a little with a lot. Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts by quite a large margin. Uh, Mark uses just over 11,000 words in his gospel. John, by comparison, uses 15,000. Matthew uses over 18,000. Luke uses over 19,000 Greek words to accomplish the same message of the gospel. Different perspectives, but at the same message of the good news of Jesus, right? And so Mark, what Mark has to do in order to do that effectively, he has to synthesize and summarize a lot of things that are going on. And so when we went through the book of Mark, remember we saw that they weren't always in chronological order, but Jesus's teachings were grouped together. His miracles were grouped together all to accomplish a certain purpose. So listen to what he said. So he, he shows up in the room, right? Reclining. He rebukes them. And then we have this word that he tells them, which we believe to be a summarization of Matthew 19 and 20, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the great commission. And then listen to verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So it took a total of six verses for Luke to sum up the entire 40-day period that Jesus, from Jesus's death and resurrection, from his resurrection until his ascension, when he went up into heaven, there was a 40-day period there. So it looks like when we read Mark, this is one event that he says, hey, go take the gospel everywhere. And then he immediately beams up from the room. He ascends into heaven. That's not what's happening. He's summarizing and he's smashing it all together to give the theme of the 40 days that Jesus would spend with his disciples. He uses six verses to do this. Matthew, by comparison, uses 20 verses. Luke uses 52 verses and then eight more, so 60 total verses in Acts Luke uses. John uses 56 verses and two whole chapters to sum up what Mark does in six verses, okay? So that's what's happening here. It's why it seems different. But what is he telling them? Go and preach the gospel everywhere. Jesus is telling them to do the most difficult thing he has asked them to do to date. I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Goes to those people that know you, that know your story, that know the hell you used to be. I want you to go to them. I want you to go to Judea and Samaria, those people that are against you in religion, the Jews. I want you to go to those that you can't stand, the Samaritans. And then I want you to go to the ends of the earth, the places that you've never even been before, and I want you to be my witnesses. Oh, by the way, Bye. I'm gone. He's leaving. So for 40 days, Mark sums up what he tells the disciples in six verses. He tells them, preach the gospel everywhere. You know, I bet you can recall the last, if you have a loved one or a dear friend, cherished friend that has passed away I bet you can recall the last conversation you had with them. If they knew that they were dying, I'm sure you had a very meaningful conversation as they knew they were sharing what could be the last words that they share. But even, even if it wasn't, even in, that, if it, in the case that it wasn't, I, I, I can, I'm sure you can recall the final words. You know Why? Because final words are important. They're intentional. Matthew And Mark says, the most important takeaway from the 40 days that Jesus spent with us as he was training us what the New Testament church would look like without his physical presence was go everywhere and preach the gospel to all creation. It's the one thing he said. I can relate to that. I can relate to that because many of you call me your preacher. I don't hate that terminology because I know what you mean by that, um, but I prefer shepherd, pastor. I, I prefer that because, I, and I know some of y'all are joking when you say this, but I, I really do think some of you might actually believe I only work. I've heard people say, oh, it'd be nice to work one hour a week. That'd be awesome. you know. And I know some of y'all are tongue-in-cheek about that and some of y'all see me in the community. know it's not that. But ultimately, what y'all see is Every single week, the most important part of my job, which is sharing God's word, right? Getting God's word uh, and and marinating on it, spending time in it, and then delivering God's word to his people, right? Through the direction of the Holy Spirit. I'm the preacher. And Gumman, if there is one thing that a preacher should do, It's that when the songs are done singing and the prayers have been prayed and the lights come on, the preacher better be in this pulpit. How many of y'all did I fool? Have I I created a spirit of skepticism so much that y'all knew what was happening when it was happening? No? Did Will just not sell it? Is that what happened? Me not being here at the beginning of the message was meant as an object lesson. If there's one thing that a preacher should do, he should preach. It's in the name, right? He should preach. He better be there. He better be there on time. And be ready to go. Certainly not running in thinking he has more important things to do. And I think about that awkwardness that we felt, that palpable awkwardness of, hey, the preacher's supposed to be here and he's not right? Can I tell you, I would argue that it is just as awkward for us to take the final directive of the church and for the church, the believers, those armed with the gospel to be completely absent in the world we are called to minister in. That palpable awkwardness in this room is just a small picture of the awkwardness of when the church shirks its responsibility in the world. And so the world just does life without the church And the only time they hear from the church is when the church is appalled at their worldly behavior because we were silent in the first place. The one thing Jesus left with his disciples, share the gospel, preach the gospel to all creation. and when that's not followed it's awkward it's awkward in the same way that there's palpable awkwardness in the room as the seconds tick by with me not being in the pulpit so the awkwardness of a, so is the awkwardness of a believer without mission what did they do What did they do after spending 40 days in seminary with Jesus, resurrected Christ, waiting for the ascension? What did they do? After Jesus ascended, they went, what does the scripture tell us, right? They went out and they preached everywhere. Why? Because that's the job of the church, to preach everywhere. We don't gather here to feel better. We don't even gather here to be encouraged. We don't gather here to make ourselves feel good. We gather so that we will go. It's evangelism the gospel. And at a certain point, regardless of how you feel when you leave on a given Sunday, if that doesn't make its way to your hands and feet, then I would argue that you really haven't spent time with Jesus. Instead, you've gathered from his word the same thing that you could get from a life coach, from a motivational speaker but it is the gospel that brings transformation. It's the gospel that brings change. But we don't just follow his commands. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I don't want y'all to do this. I know y'all haven't seen me do this, but I want you to do this. No, we don't just follow his commands example right we don't just follow his his commands we follow his conduct as well we follow Christ's conduct Jesus by the way he lived his life set an example for us of how to engage the world look at Luke chapter 15 Luke chapter 15 beginning in verse 1 now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. In Jesus's day, social class and reputation was probably the most important pop culture struggle in the church. The reason is there were in Jesus' day the haves and the have-nots. There were those that had land, that had money, and that had influence. And then there were those that would have to sell their body, sell their, uh, their work, sell everything that they had, sell themselves out as slaves in order to provide for their family and there really wasn't much of a middle ground. You were either a peasant, serving out indentured servitude to try to make a way for your family to somehow climb this unclimbable social ladder, or you were at the top of the ladder. And so it became very, very important that people would try to put their best foot forward, that they would understand that you had arrived socially. The whole premise of parables like the wedding feast that Jesus would tell presupposed of a wedding host who would invite the most important people first. And if the most important people declined then he would invite the second most important and then the third and then at a certain point he'd just invite anybody because we wanted to be a big party right but that was the way things went it was all about reputation it was all about putting the best foot forward there is much in the new testament and that christ specifically addresses about showing partiality and preferential treatment of others We are not to show partiality or to reserve the best seat in the house for the most important person. This is why this was important. And so in this context, the religious rulers of the day are expecting to get the invites to all of Jesus' parties. He's the Messiah, so he should invite me. He's a religious rabbi at best, and maybe he should invite me. But when they began to see him dining with the tax collectors and the sinners, they couldn't accept this type of a Messiah. This was not the only time he did this. In Luke chapter five, we hear Levi's story, right? Ma- uh, Matthew, the tax collector. We read this just a few weeks ago. Luke five, 31 through 32. And Jesus answered them, right? He, he, invite, he calls Levi to follow him. And Levi follows him, and he has a large banquet at his house, and he invites all of his lost tax collector friends. And guess what the Pharisees do? They grumble again. He's eating with sinners. What a dummy. He can't be the Messiah. He would invite me, not them. And how does Jesus answer? Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus engaged the tax collectors and the sinners. In fact, the words were synonymous in Zacchaeus' story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree because why? The Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said... Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. Guess what the Pharisees did? Oh, they grumbled. He's eating again with sinners. You know what Jesus tells them? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost we see Jesus's conduct to the world. He wasn't hanging out with those people so that he could get kickbacks from all of the prophets they made off Rome. He wasn't there because of the, the, the money or the affluence to fund his ministry. In fact, when Jesus showed up, people like Zacchaeus and Matthew gave away everything that they had accumulated, gave it all away. No, but he had the wrong friends for the right reasons. The sinful trap of partiality that we miss sometimes is that in looking down our noses at the neediness of others, we miss our own desperate state. What makes Jesus different than the Pharisees and the tax collectors is the Pharisees were so galvanized against those less than them gospel. They missed the fact that it is amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that doesn't save a wretch like you, 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 and you, but that saves a wretch like me. Any attitude or accomplishment that would cause us to reach a level in which we would be inclined to show partiality, mostly, usually, and by putting ourselves higher than another person, is a sinful practice. Is us losing the perspective of God and how he views our sin. The gospel found me as a wretch. As someone who could in no way pay back all of his debt. But Jesus saved me anyway. This is the conduct. This is is what we see in Christ is him bringing people to this point, sharing Christ with them, them believing. And so are we intentional about these things? Listen, Jesus launches uh, in, in, in Luke chapter 15. He launches into a flurry of three Parables that deal with the issue of lostness. He talks about the lost sheep that we're gonna talk about in a minute. He talks about the lost coin, that in both of those cases, when the lost coin is lost, even though there's other coins, and when the lost sheep is lost, even though there's a lot of other sheep, there's rejoicing and there's, it's a good thing. People are excited. In the same way, the perspective of heaven is, when lostness is found, it is a beautiful thing. But then he tells the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son's story hit different because while the people could relate the prodigal son to all those Gentiles that were going off and living riotously, had no business, they were, they were taking their inheritance and running, the father responded in a very specific way to them. Remember what happened? The father was watching and he saw his son from a long way off. And once the son got to the end of himself and came back, the father ran to the son, didn't say, you can come meet me on this porch, ran to the son, embraced him, put a ring and a robe on him and told and and threw a party for him. My son was lost. Now he is found. This is the perspective of heaven. But there was another brother. The older brother. While everybody's partying, while everyone's feasting, where's the older brother? He's grumbling he's brooding. How dare this Johnny come lately, this manipulator of your grace, how dare he get a celebration that's greater than mine? Do you know where that landed him? Outside the party. You know what Jesus is communicating by the prodigal son? He's not communicating primarily about lostness. He's communicating to the Jews the fact that they are missing heaven because they can't get over themselves. That's the story of the prodigal son. Don't call it the prodigal son, call it the lost brothers. They're missing heaven because they can't get over the fact that Jesus wants to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That's the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. This is the new thing that Jesus is doing. And guess what? Our, my followers will follow suit. We don't just follow Jesus's commands. We don't just follow his conduct. We follow his compassion. You know why Jesus did what he did? He had the, he had the heart of heaven. He had the heart of of heaven as God's only Son. Look what we read in verse 3 in Luke chapter 15. So he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. There is joy that is found. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. It's the most important thing to me right now. Enjoin me in fellowship and joy. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you know what the heart of heaven is? One more. And when that one is reached, you know what the heart of heaven is? One more. And then one more. And then one more. This is what Jesus is modeling to his disciples. This is his heart. But this is what he's inviting his disciples into. If this is the heart of the king, it should be the heart of everyone who claims citizenship in heaven. If this world is no longer your home, then you shouldn't desire the things of this world. If our perspective is not the perspective of heaven, then we need to be careful how we claim citizenship in heaven. He's saying that the kingdom, the king and all of his kingdom has the perspective of one more. One more person to pass from death to life. He's inviting his disciples, not just by his command, not just by his example, he's inviting them into a heart relationship. God has called us to reach the world with the gospel. What was the summation of all those 40 days? Preach the gospel to all creation. May we be so moved by what Christ has done in us that we crave as citizens of heaven, not to indulge in the passing pleasures of this world, but to enjoy in the righteous joy and fellowship in feasting, in finding one more. We make a big deal about heaven throwing a party for finding someone who's lost. What What I would argue is that should be the perspective of the church as well. It should be the single most important thing that we do what Christ has called us to as his church is discipleship and evangelism we talk about these circles that provide the foundation that ultimately drives us to evangelism and guess what evangelism does evangelism reaches the world through the holy spirit god works in partnership with his word not everybody will receive it we we talked about that in mark 15 or 16 right not everybody will receive it but we bring the gospel to the world, and when the world responds to it, they become part of the church, and then they begin being discipled through the circles of community that we have in our lives, we see in the lives of others, until one day, that one more gets discipled to the place, and God moves in their heart in such a way that they desire to see one more reached, and then one more reaches one more, reaches one more, reaches one more, and the church grows throughout the centuries. And that's why we're here. If you are thankful that you were the target of heaven at some point in your life, you were the lost sheep that heaven sought through the obedience of a follower of Jesus, that you were found and that heaven rejoiced, it should be our primary directive to desire to see that party thrown for others. It's the one thing. The greatest indictment against the church is that almost 90% of those claiming a relationship with Jesus Christ will never share the gospel with another living soul. God has called us out of this world to make a difference in this world. If you claim that citizenship, that's not something that comes from within you. That's something that comes from God alone. So if you don't have that, you haven't experienced that, And my friend, I would invite you to respond in relationship with Jesus. To get serious about the mission that he's called you to. Would you bow your head and close your eyes. So we transition into a time of invitation. If you're here today and you don't know that you have a relationship with Christ, I want you to know that you're the target of heaven. (laughs) I want want nothing more as someone who is just a fellow wretch that has been found. I'm just a dumb sheep that's went astray my own way in my own time, but I've been brought near by Jesus. I want you to respond to that same message today. Would you come today? Would you surrender your life to Jesus? Maybe for the first time. Would you ask him to change your heart from the inside out? Listen, you are powerless to change yourself. And so, if you're waiting for some magical, mystical, intangible day that you'll have your whole act together before you come to Jesus, my friend, you will never reach Jesus. It just won't happen. You don't change you. God does. The finished work of Jesus, he accomplished perfection for you because you couldn't help yourself. I couldn't help myself. So if you need to respond to that message of the gospel today, and I'd invite you to come. Invite you to come. And this is my promise to you that heaven and this local body of believers will rejoice, will rejoice in seeing you pass from death in your sins to new life in Christ. If that's you, man, please don't leave without doing business with the Lord. In just a moment, I'm gonna say amen after I pray and you can respond. You can find me. I'll be at the front. I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus. But maybe you're in here and and maybe, maybe your toes are just stomped. Maybe it's time that you respond to the gospel that changed you. There may be people that God's laying on your, light, on your heart right now. Individual names right now that you need to come and you need to spend time at this altar. You need to intercede and pray for that God would use you in a powerful way to bring the message of the gospel to them this week. Maybe before the sun sets today that God would call you to speak to them, to share with them the hope that's found in the gospel. It's the one thing It's awkward when we neglect it. We either believe it or we don't, church. If you're here and you need to pray for somebody, maybe you need to do business with the Lord yourself. Maybe you need to respond in another way, make some other decision. Maybe you need to be join and be a part of what God's doing here and join the church as a member. Maybe you need to take the first step of obedience and be baptized. You know that you're a child of God, but you've never been baptized. Maybe you need to do that. Take that tangible step today. Whatever it is, I pray that you would respond as the Spirit leads you in this time of invitation. Father, we thank you. We understand that we don't have any business being associated with you. You have called us friend, and you have pursued us in our filth, and you have made us new. God, may we live a life that reflects that transformation. And if we have not experienced that transformation, may we respond to it today in obedience not worried about who's around, not worried about who's going to look or who's going to see, but we would respond to you. You call us to that in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As we stand to our feet, as we sing, would you come? As the Spirit leads, as the Spirit draws, would you respond?